At this time, let's turn in our Bibles to the Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Let's give our attention to God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, Do not look upon me, because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. We will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. While the king is at his table, My spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of En Gedi. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening, let's focus our attention upon verse 12. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. While the king is at his table. You can see here the progression from this morning. As we saw the bride confessing herself to the daughters of Jerusalem to being dark and yet lovely. To having been scorched by the sun of weary toil and affliction. Do not look upon me because I am dark. The sun has tanned me. And in her weariness, in her guilt for sin, she has not kept her vineyard. She's been despised and afflicted by her brethren. They've made her keeper of the vineyards, but she acknowledges that in all my toil and busyness, my own vineyard I haven't kept. And so, she's darkened. By guilt, she's ashamed. Don't look at me, she says to the daughters of Jerusalem. But she is lovely. The Christian life is such that we find darkness. We find discouragement. We find toil. We find guilt. We find shame. But notice that this bride is lovely. She's beautiful. She says to the daughters of Jerusalem, it's not all, it's not all darkness and doom and gloom. It's Loveliness, the Christian life, is a beautiful thing. And through the Christian faith and life, we become beautiful in Christ. And so she goes to her bridegroom. She goes to the royal bridegroom whom she styles here as the Good Shepherd. She says, tell me, O you whom I love, verse 7, where do you feed your flock? Tell me where you make it to rest at noon. She's scorched by the sun and the noonday sun, but... 
she's looking to find rest and a shade and under the shadow of His wings as the Good Shepherd. And so, she goes to Jesus as it were. She comes to Him weary and heavily burdened. And we're told that He gives her counsel. In verse 8, He's encouraging toward her. He says, you're the fairest among women. And as believers, we know, and we should know, but sometimes we need to be reminded that by being declared righteous in Christ, having been clothed in His perfect, beautiful righteousness, we are beautiful. We reflect His glory like the moon reflects the light of the sun. It's, it's not our glory, but it reflects off of us. And you see the beauty of the moon, the full moon at night. It's really the light of the sun, but it's, it's the beauty of the moon. And my friends, as a Christian, you need to know that you are beautiful. You are lovely in the sight of God through your justification, through the imputed righteousness of Christ. And by sanctification, Christ washing His bride with water by the Word is sanctifying and conforming you to His beautiful perfection day by day. And one day, that beauty will be fully manifested in the world to come when you shall be like Him and see Him as He is. Dear believer, you are beautiful. Church of Jesus Christ, collectively, you are beautiful. Jesus is saying you're most lovely. And if you don't know, then He says, I'm going to tell you, you need to follow the footsteps of the flock. And more could be said, but where do those footsteps of the flock lead? They lead, verse 12, to the king's table. Just like in Psalm 23. Some people struggle with Psalm 23. They're saying, well, I thought it was the good shepherd and his sheep. And all of a sudden, he's putting a table before us and our cup is running over and so on and so forth. But this is a biblical thing. I don't know how else to put it. You see it throughout the Bible. You see it in Psalm 23. You see it here. There's this idea of the good shepherd and then it transitions to the king at his table and the blessing of God providing a table for us. So the footsteps of the flock lead to the king's table. Now, before we pursue this any further, this afternoon I was reading through a Spurgeon sermon on this topic, and I just want to read something just to heighten our sensitivity to the importance of this text and and really of this book of the Song of Solomon. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Certain divines, that's theologians, have doubted the inspiration of Solomon's song. Others have conceived it to be nothing more than a specimen of ancient love songs. And some have been afraid to preach from it because of its highly poetic character. The true reason for all this avoidance of one of the most heavenly portions of God's Word lies in the fact that the spirit of this song is not so easily attained. Its music belongs to the higher spiritual life and has no charm in it for unspiritual ears. The song occupies a sacred enclosure into which none may enter unprepared. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground, is the warning voice from its secret tabernacles. The historical books I may compare to the outer courts of the temple. The Gospels, the Epistles, and the Psalms bring us into the holy place, or the court of the priests. But the song of Solomon is the most holy place, the holy of holies, before which the veil still hangs to many an untaught believer. It is not all the saints who can enter here, for they have not yet attained unto the holy confidence of faith and that exceeding familiarity of love which will permit them to commune in conjugal love with the great bridegroom. My friends, that's not meant to be intimidating He's not trying to set the bar too high, but what he's saying is, this is, as the title of the book of sermons of Spurgeon on Song of Solomon, the most holy place. This is the deep, intimate, conjugal communion, marital affection between Christ and His church, between Christ and the believer. And so when we look at this text and we follow the footsteps of the flock and we come to the king's table, we need to recognize that indeed, Our feet are on holy ground. And how fitting, how fitting that we can meditate upon the king's table tonight even as we prepare to follow the footsteps of the flock 
to the king's table to commemorate his death and commune with him here this evening until he comes. Well, first this evening we consider the king's table. The king's table. Remember, the bride is speaking here to the daughters of Jerusalem. She's telling them about the ups and downs of her Christian life, dark but lovely. She's pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. She's saying, don't look at me. She's saying, don't look at me. Look to the one who is light and whom, in whom there is no darkness at all. Look to the Son of Righteousness that arises with healing in His wings. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. Don't look at me. Look at Christ. And follow the footsteps of the flock to the King's table. We're told, verse 12, while the King is at His table. Notice it's a table. We might take that for granted, but again, as you follow the Song of Solomon, you see you've got all this different imagery that's presented. You, you've got the, let's just say you've got the shepherd imagery. You've got the marital imagery. You've got all these different things. Here you have the table being presented for us. And the table represents a banquet, a feast. Ordinarily, this would not be something intimate and private, one-on-one, as, as perhaps uh, earlier in the chapter, the king has brought me into his chambers, or a bundle of myrrh, verse 13, is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. You have that intimacy in the chamber, but here in verse 12, the king is at his table. Ordinarily, this would be a public occasion. It would be corporate. It's not like the tables at Starbucks that are designed for one person. This is a table that's designed at, for a banquet, for a feast. In fact, chapter 5, if you look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1, the, the second half of that verse, eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. So this is a place where the friends, the, the beloved of the bridegroom are feasting and rejoicing together at the king's table. Psalm 23 doesn't really have the corporate element, but David's saying that you've set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So it's not just David, it's in the watching world, the wicked world is seeing God blessing David. And no doubt if Jesus is the good shepherd, if the Lord is the good shepherd for David, then David's not the only sheep in the flock. Right? This is a table that all of God's people are to sing about and all of God's people are to be seated at. This table in the midst of our enemies is a table that is corporate. It's public. It's a banquet. It's a feast. This imagery of a table is also brought to bear when we think about Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan. And ordinarily, when a king left the throne his family members were in danger of being put to death. But 2 Samuel 9, verse 7 says that David had mercy upon this son of Jonathan. David fulfilled his friendship covenant with Jonathan and showed mercy not only toward this son of Jonathan, but toward this son of Jonathan who was disabled. He was lame in his feet and would have been despised and rejected. And yet, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see that He's brought to sit at the king's table to be fed, but also as a representation of the reconciliation. This is a member of the house of Saul, and here's the house of David, and there's this friendship, this reconciliation between these two houses that is represented at that table. It reminds us of John Welsh of, of Ayr in Scotland several centuries ago. John Welsh, who came to the town of Ayr in Scotland to be the minister, and there was all kinds of disunity and violence and bloodshed in the town. People were challenging each other to duels. There, there was hatred and animosity and division in the town. And so what he would do is he would go up to the people that were dueling to the death, and he would confront them from the Word of God. And this was a bold and very courageous individual, John Welsh, but he would get to the point where once he had persuaded them to put down their arms and put down their fists, and he would eventually set a table in the middle of the street 
and serve them food and they would eat at that table to signify their reconciliation together. That's what a table represents. It represents restored fellowship. It represents reconciliation and peace and harmony and friendship. Luke 22, verse 29. Listen to the way that Jesus applies the promises of the Gospel to His disciples. Luke 22, verse 29. I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as My Father bestowed one upon Me, that you may eat and drink at My table in My kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that is ultimately fulfilled we know from a cross-reference at the regeneration, at the new heavens, the new earth, in heaven to come. But that's pictured at the Lord's Supper. We're part of His kingdom. And we come and we sit at the table of this kingdom reflecting on the fact that we've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and now we have a seat at the king's table. As John Knox famously said, in speaking against the Roman Catholic practice and the high church Anglican practice of bowing at the Lord's table or bowing at at the front of the church, you'd come up and you'd bow and receive the elements. He says that uh, God's people, when they commune, they don't bow as slaves, but they sit as children around their father's table. Alluding perhaps to Psalm 128, verse 3, the children seated around the table, the children of God, the brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, the king's table. And it is his table. It's not my table. It's not the elder's table. We have responsibilities, keys of the kingdom, and so forth. But it's not our table. It's not your table. It's the king's table. And he determines what the terms of inclusion at his table are. And you can read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and following, which speaks of the elements of communion, that the cup is the communion of Christ's blood, and the bread is the communion or fellowship of Christ's body. We'll look at that in a moment. But it also says that just as we are one body, we partake of the one bread. It's not saying the one bread is the one body, the church collectively, but it's saying just as there is one body, so we partake of the one loaf of bread. And what that's saying is that those who partake of the Lord's table are members in good standing in the church of Jesus Christ. They are part of the visible body of Christ. They've made a profession of faith and they've been admitted to the Lord's table. They profess faith and repentance and they live a life that doesn't contradict that. It's the king's table. He sets and he determines the terms of inclusion at this table. Repentant believers. Psalm 15 is a good place to start. You can read about who ought to be coming to the Lord's holy hill. And it basically describes a repentant, believing, godly lifestyle. Uh, and, And you can see Psalm 15, verse 1, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Very practical. It's saying that someone who comes to the Lord's table, the Old Covenant sacramental feasts, or we think in the New Covenant with the Lord's Supper, the one who comes to that sacrament needs to be someone who is living out their faith. Someone who is not simply professing something about God, but someone who is taking seriously the need to seek first God's kingdom in all the relationships of life. And that's going to come into play in all these different interactions that you see in that psalm. So it's not just professing the faith in some abstract way, but it's a concrete application of faith to the life of the believer. Now, of course, we all sin. And when we say a repentant believer... If your repentance and your life was perfect, you wouldn't need to be a believer, right? But if you're a true believer, there's going to be repentance. Now, what about 
the, the ongoing struggles that we have with sin. Well, you can look at Romans where Paul deals with his own problems, his own struggles with sin. And I'm I'm not going to go into that entire chapter, but notice in that chapter as he's dealing with the fact that he wants to do the right thing and sometimes he doesn't. He doesn't do what he he wants to do. And he hates evil, but sometimes he does it. And and he, he sins, as we all do. But he says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So even the Christian that struggles with sin who comes to this table is someone who does delight in the law of God. If you present the law of God to the believer, there on a, you know, I know there are debatable ethical issues, but I'm saying in, in substance, you present the need to love other people. You present the, the Ten Commandments and you begin to expound them. There's someone who actually wants to be like that. They actually want to be godly in those areas. They want to obey God's law. They delight in the law of God, not just as a way of getting to the Lord's table and having an outward status and respect, but in the inward man. He says, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. So the true Christian in in a battle against sin is truly conflicted. They're not in love with sin, but they just go through the motions to keep people happy in terms of their public reputation in the church. But there's a genuine conflict, a spiritual battle. There's a warring. I see another law in my members, this sinful principle, warring against the law of my mind. In the unconverted person, there's no war because sin is just taking dominion. But in this case, sin has to earn every ounce of progress that it makes in the believer's life. It has to actually engage in warfare to bring the believer into submission because the believer, as a regenerate believer, is fighting against sin, loves righteousness, loves the law of God, delights in it. And so sin has to wage war against him. And it says, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. If you're in captivity in in a certain place, it means you don't want to be there. You want to get out. The believer delights in righteousness. And when he falls into a pattern of sin, he hates it. Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He wants to get out. He wants to overcome his sin. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, in other words, he goes on in chapter 8. This is, you know, he explains how he's able to kill sin. How by the Spirit of God through the death and resurrection of Christ, he's able to crucify the flesh and put sin to death. And that's the evidence that he's truly converted. So it doesn't mean that we're perfect, far from it. The more godly we are, the more of our sin that we come to grips with. The more sin that we notice. If we're under the dominion of sin, we probably feel pretty good about ourselves. So this is the Lord's table. He tells us the terms of inclusion And he defines the elements and the benefits of this table. He defines these things. Jesus has instituted the cup of wine, the bread, the loaf that he gives to his people at this table of the Lord. The king's table. And it's very important that we don't add or subtract from the king's table. Everything we need to fill our souls... Everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our repentance, to give us peace in our conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, everything we need to enhance the power of God's Word in our lives, producing those benefits, is signified at this table. All we need is Jesus Christ. All we need is His broken body. All we need is His shed blood. That is all we need. That's why he determined those two elements to say, this is all you need. You need Jesus to die for your sins and to shed His blood. It is finished. He has done it. Come to the table and receive the finished work at the King's table. And it's so important that as we come to the Lord's table that we don't get distracted, that we're focused on these elements and realizing the table represents feeding the people of God. It represents giving us what we need to sustain us. And what the Lord is saying in this table is, this is honestly all you need. You need my broken body. You need my shed blood. 
That's all you need. You need to believe in those things. Those things represent the way in which you're justified. Those things represent the power that sanctifies you, that puts to death your sinful flesh and crucifies it and raises you up in newness of life. The life is in the blood. That's all you need. The broken body and the poured out blood at the king's table. Well, secondly, we consider the king at his table. It's not just the king's table, but while the king is at his table. This is telling us that according to the language here in the Song of Solomon, it's telling us that the king is at his table. When you come to the king's table, it's not just to remember the king, to think about the king, to to picture in your mind the king on the cross. I mean, those things are good, but when Solomon envisions the Old Covenant church coming to the Passover table, coming along the footsteps of the flock to Jerusalem for the Old Testament sacraments, as, as it uh, seems evidently pictured here, he's saying the king is present. The king is present at the tabernacle, present at the temple, the glory cloud, the Shekinah. And in the New Testament, as believers, all the more. Now, there's not an outward token of that, but that's the whole point of the New Testament, that our faith is increased. Faith has come. Faith is on steroids. Faith enables us to perceive the felt presence of our Savior without a glory cloud, without anything of the sort. He is present. And I mentioned 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17 that the cup is the fellowship, the fellowship of His blood. The bread is the fellowship of His body. That's more than just saying, well, it's communion. It's the communion of His blood. Sometimes because we use the communion for the sacrament as a whole, we miss the poignancy and the directness and the significance of what Paul is saying. That's the word for Christian fellowship. When we gather together for fellowship, we spend time with each other. He's saying that Christ is present to communicate the power of His shed blood and His broken body to us at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's a fellowship. It is a communion. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says that Jesus is present in the midst of the golden candlesticks, in the midst of His churches. When His churches gather for worship, where two or three are gathered, He's there in the midst of the candlesticks, each candlestick representing the churches in in the book of Revelation. And By the way, those golden candlesticks that are represented there, bringing our attention back to the Old Testament and the temple, that golden candlestick would have been on a table. And that would have been the table of showbread or the table of the bread of the presence. Jesus is present whenever His church gathers, but especially He's he's present when the bread of His presence, when the sacrament of His presence is administered. And... The Word of God is as a candlestick to illumine the table and He feeds us with Himself. The King is at His table. We shouldn't think that when we come to this table it's just about our brothers and sisters, though we don't want to miss that fact. It's horizontal as well as vertical. But the King, even as He sings with His brethren, when we sing the psalm, Psalm 22, He lifts up His voice. It's also true that He's with us at the table. And he's eager. The king is at his table and he's there eagerly desiring to meet with his bride. Look at verse 9. He says, I've compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. He's eager. Verse 15, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. The king at his table is eager to fellowship with his bride. No matter how much guilt we feel, no matter how dark but lovely and we're struggling with assurance, it doesn't matter if you are justified by Jesus Christ, if you are a temple of His Holy Spirit, if you're being sanctified unto glory in heaven, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, as sinful and dark and desolate as you may feel, Jesus The king is at his table and he's eager and he views you as beautiful, lovely, the fairest of women. 
That's how he views you. And this is why the Song of Solomon makes us feel uncomfortable because it takes faith to believe that. How could Jesus feel that way about me? How could Jesus be at this table desiring me to come? But my friends, you read the Gospels and there's no way around it. He's eager. Listen to Luke 22.15 with the bumbling and stumbling disciples uh, that we, we find so much in common with at times. Luke twenty two fifteen. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Doesn't say the disciples had a fervent desire to eat the Passover with Jesus. His desire, presumably, was even greater than their desire. Imagine eating the Passover with the Son of God. But His desire is greater than their desire. He is eager with a fervent desire to spend that time with them. The King is eagerly at His table. In other words, you get the sense that the bride is on her way following the footsteps of the flock by the shepherd's tents and the King is waiting for her at the table and is pleased to see her and welcome her. Even gets up and Pulls, up, pulls out a chair, and she's seated at that table. That is the eagerness of the king to receive his people at the table. In addition, the king is altogether lovely. And the words that are used here in this chapter, verse 16, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Handsome, and pleasant. She says later in chapter 5, verse 16, he is altogether lovely. She looks at every aspect of her king, and there's no spot in him. There's no unrighteousness in him. There's nothing about Jesus. I mean, you can read the Gospels backwards and forwards. You can read every psalm that speaks about Jesus. You can look him over, up and down and all around. There is no unrighteousness in him. He is altogether lovely. And that's what we sang in Psalm 45, verse 2. Psalm 45, verse 2, which was written as a psalm of the sons of Korah. Notice the sons of Korah, but the sons of Korah don't have any problem saying that their king is beautiful and handsome. Verse 2, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. They, they glory in His sword, in His majesty, in His truth and humility and righteousness. Every aspect, His humanity, His deity. He is altogether lovely. And this same word for loveliness or beauty or fairness is used in Psalm 48 to speak of the people of God. Psalm 48, verse 2. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great King. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. My friends, when you come to the table of the Lord and the King is at His table and He's present and He eagerly welcomes you and He's in these palaces and He's present in the midst of His people, then the beauty of the great King reflects off of the bride, off of His people, off of every single believer who comes to Him. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. Why? Because she's the city of the great King and God is in her palaces. The Lord is at this table. As I mentioned, I think the church, the believer, is, is like the moon that reflects the light of the sun. Even so, we reflect the handsome, pleasant beauty of holiness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And nobody can take that away from us. Satan can't take that away from you. He comes to your right hand and he's accusing you of this sin and that sin. sin. And, and at the end of the day, you just need to confess those sins because he is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins. Your beauty is not predicated on your perfection. Your beauty is not predicated on your performance. Your beauty is predicated and based and grounded and founded upon the finished work of Christ. He has made you beautiful through your justification. 
He is making you beautiful. And the more you feel that conviction of sin and confess your sin, that is the lowliness, that is the sacrifice that He will not despise. Psalm 51. The humility makes you more beautiful. The more sin you perceive in yourself and you're, you're just overwhelmed with it and you're sorrowing over it, that's the sorrow that leads to repentance. That's what makes you more and more beautiful. Not feeling so good about yourself and just squinting your eyes and ignoring the law of God. But in any event, this king is altogether lovely and it reflects on his people. Also, he is elusive. He's present, but it says while the king is at his table. And if you know anything about the Song of Solomon, you know that that statement has significance while he's at his table. In other words, he's not always at his table. He's elusive. God, and we can say God in the person of Christ, will never leave and will never forsake his people collectively and each believer individually. That is true. But the felt sense of his presence is elusive in the Christian life. And throughout this book, that truth is represented. For instance, chapter 1, verse 4, draw me away. We will run after you. So they're they're chasing after the king. Chapter 2, verse 8, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes. In other words, the felt sense of his presence wasn't there. Now it's coming. Seemingly out of nowhere, perhaps, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills, It goes on to say, verse 10, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away, for lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. So you can see there are seasons of proximity and and intimacy and distance in the Christian life in terms of the felt presence of Christ. That is what this book is representing for us and what a comforting thing it is to know that just because I don't feel His presence, it doesn't mean He's left me or forsaken me. Just because the clouds have kept the sunlight from shining on my face, it doesn't mean that God has left me, that Christ is not with me. But it does mean that we should value the times when His felt presence is in our midst. That especially we should strive that when we come to the Lord's table, we're putting out of our minds and out of our lives and just putting out whatever might distract, whatever might stir him up to, to leave, whatever might grieve his spirit, whatever might create a situation like in Laodicea where he says, I'm actually on the outside of the church and behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door, I'll come in and sup with you. I'll eat with you and you with me. But... They've driven him away. You see chapter 3, verse 1, By night on my bed I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. She has to go looking for him because he's elusive. Chapter 5, verse 2, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. This is what Jesus is referring to, by the way, with Laodicea. He's alluding to this text because this text talks about him standing at the door and knocking. But in any event, Jesus comes to us sometimes. The the Spirit moves us maybe to put down what we're doing and pray or to to open the Word of God. Or perhaps we have a set time for, for prayer and the Scriptures. Or perhaps even in public worship or at the Lord's table, there are these times when Jesus is offering to meet with us. But notice the response. She doesn't take it seriously. I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? In other words, I put on my pajamas. I'm in bed. I'm not getting out. I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door and my heart yearned for him. She gets up and he's gone. He's elusive. And at the end of the book, verse 14, perhaps a messianic trajectory here, at the end of the book of Song of Solomon, Solomon represents this anticipation that the beloved will return or will arrive. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. So this is the collective Old Testament church longing for the coming 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in any event, there's this elusiveness in terms of His felt presence. And, and that means that we need to seek the Lord while He may be found. That doesn't mean that we need to be pessimistic and say, well, I guess I have no hope. Or we begin to think that His felt presence is so riveted and tied to our performance that we just throw up our hands. That's not what it's meant to say. It's meant to say, don't just stay in bed while the bridegroom's walk, uh, knocking. And he's knocking. This is his table. He's instituted this to bring you forth to sit at his table and enjoy his presence. To one extent or another, I can't guarantee this is going to be the greatest experience of His felt presence compared to other times, my friends, it's just hard to know. But He's here. And we need to believe that. And it's in believing that by faith, according to His promise, that we're able to experience Him. The King at His table. Well, thirdly, the bride at the King's table. The bride at the King's table. What do we see in the way that she conducts herself. It's important for us not to spend more time thinking about the bride at the king's table than the king at his table. Let's be careful about that. That's why two-thirds of sermon points here are focused on the king and his table. But it is important for us to consider ourselves and to consider the bride who represents the church or the believer at the king's table. What do we find here that she's presenting to these daughters of Jerusalem as an example for how they might follow the footsteps of the flock and how they might enjoy communion and fellowship at the king's table themselves? Well, first of all, she's reverent. She refers to the king as the king. The king. Not a king. The king. She worships this king. Psalm 45 brings out this, this same imagery. It's really just parallel in many ways. Worship him because he is your Lord. Hear and heed his voice. The king will be attracted and desire your beauty insofar as you worship him as your Lord. She's reverent. She doesn't take this for granted. She doesn't take this privilege lightly in any way whatsoever. She's very serious about this reverence. And my friends, when we come to the Lord's table, it's important for us before we get to the intimacy, and that's part of this, but we need to respect the fact that God is God and Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. He is fully God. He is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. He's the creator of the universe. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He, every single day, sends people to hell for their sins and exalts people to heaven. Every single day when people die, thousands, hundreds of thousands, however many thousands of people die, every day it is the King who is rendering justice and pouring out grace. This King is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. When Paul brings correction to the church at Corinth, he reminds them that they ought not to partake of the Lord's table unworthily. In other words, come in a way that's careless. They're not prepared. They're not examining themselves. They're not spiritually minded. Taking this great privilege, this holy of holies in the Christian life, this great privilege of the priesthood of all believers to come into the holy presence of Christ, to eat at His table. They're not taking it seriously. They're, they're basically drinking too much wine and, and turning it into some kind of a carnal worldly meal. But Paul says that that's not the tradition that he received from Christ. That's not the ordinance or the institution that he received from Christ. And we're told here that verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in that sort of flippant and unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. These things represent His body and blood. So think about Jesus on the cross, crucified, the hands of the Son of God incarnate nailed to the wooden cross. The feet of God in the flesh nailed to the wooden cross. Think of the crown of thorns. Think of the mockers. Think of 
the pain, the suffering, the infinite wrath of God. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think of the body and blood of the Lord. Think of the, the spear that pierced his side and blood and water flowed. Think about that. Is that something to trivialize? Is that something to make mechanical and just go through the motions and churn it out like a Henry Ford uh, you know, um, assembly line? Is this something to treat in a cavalier way? No, this is something we need to be very conscious of the holiness. This is more holy than the burning bush. We don't need to take our shoes off, but spiritually, in a sense, we do. Let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Not realizing how serious, how weighty this is. What a privilege to sit at the king's table. Would we take it lightly if we were invited to sit at the table of a great king, a great head of state? It's hard to mention particular ones because it would be so distracting of how bad some of these political leaders are. But think of someone that you really respected. Think of maybe the last president you were able to vote for. Whatever. Think of that person, that highly respected head of state, and they invite you to sit at their table. How seriously how grave and weighty you would take that occasion to be and how much more the Lord's table. And so when we don't take it seriously, God gets our attention. He causes us to wake up by, in some cases, people falling asleep. People are dying. People are getting sick in Corinth because of the judgment that God brought. And yet, He gets our attention to take his table seriously. So she comes in a reverent way, the king. But she comes in an intimate way, my beloved. She respects him, she reverences him, she worships the king, but she is intimate. This is not just the king, but verse 14, my beloved. And when we come to the table, Jesus is not honored by us glorifying and worshiping him as if he were some austere, distant, king as if he were the king but not my beloved that doesn't honor him he didn't pour out his blood so that we could come to the lord's table and keep him at arm's length no like john we need to lean upon his bosom we need to have an intimacy at the table of the king because he's not just the king he's my beloved a bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me myrrh was a precious spice a spice that was associated with the priestly anointing oil in the Old Testament. It's associated with Christ in Psalm 45 for that very reason. We've seen other aspects of the anointing oil earlier in this chapter. But here what she's saying is that He's precious. He's beautiful. He's valuable. I'm clinging to Him. I'm clinging to this bundle of myrrh, the aroma, the joy the satisfaction. I'm clinging to Him. And and this bundle of myrrh, it lies all night between my breasts. She loves it. She cherishes it. You couldn't pull it from her, her cold, dead hands. She's not letting go. She's not letting go of Jesus. She loves her King. She loves her Savior. And as Peter says, to you who believe, He is precious. To you who believe... The Lord Jesus Christ, the King at this table, is my beloved, and I'm clinging to Him. I'm not letting Him go, not for anything. He's beautiful. He's perfect. He saved me. He's here to feed me and strengthen me and take me to a glorious world to come. He will receive my soul at death. He'll raise me from the dead at the last day, and I will ever be with the Lord. And I will ever be with the Lord. And I will cling to Him, as it were, all night. And I'm not letting Him go. My friends, that is the intimacy with which the bride comes to the Lord's table. To the King's table. And you you can see in chapter 5, verse 1, Eat, O friends. Eat, O friends. Friends, And right, at, right before that, he says, I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. So you see some of the, the, the intimacy, his beloved, his friends, his 
body, his bride, the church. And in this intimacy, you can see that we ought not to shy away from speaking of Jesus in an intimate way. Not a familiar way, taking Him for granted in that sort of way, but in an intimate way because there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. There is a friend. Jesus is our friend. He says to the disciples in John 15, I don't just call you servants, I call you friends and I speak openly and intimately with you. I communicate the truth to you. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, it says that Abraham was God's friend. God's friend. And in Genesis 18, verses 17 through 19, God says as much. He says, Abraham, I've known you so that you will keep my commandments. I've established this relationship with you as your shield and your exceeding great reward. I've known you, Abraham, so that you will keep my commandments and you'll teach your children. And it speaks of this intimacy. He says, I, will I withhold from Abraham what I'm going to do in judging Sodom and Gomorrah? No, I'll tell Abraham. Why? Because he's my friend. And yet notice how Abraham speaks of God in that chapter. He says, I am but dust and ashes before the Most High God. So you see, my friends, it's the reverence that paves the way for the intimacy. We don't want to deny the intimacy. My friends, God is our Father. He, he's our King. Jesus is our Lord. But God is our friend. Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And the way to come to that intimacy is through the doorway of reverence. Whenever the church loses its reverence in the worship of God, you can know one thing is for certain. It has lost its intimacy with the Savior. Psalm 25, verse 14, the secret of the Lord, also translated or rendered the close friendship, the intimacy, the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear Him. Where there's reverence, it paves the way for intimacy. Where it's irreverent and casual and flippant, one thing's for sure, in a sense, Jesus has left the building in terms of any felt presence. But where there is the fear of the Lord, He shows the intimacy. He will show them His covenant. And that's what we desire, to know Him and the power of His resurrection. Intimacy. And by the way, we can apply that to our parenting. I know there's been a lot of uh, talk about a recent sermon that talks about, you know, should we view our children as friends or not friends? And certainly in a sense, we shouldn't be try to be our buddy-buddy with our children in, in a way that detracts from the authority that we have and, and the importance of fathers and mothers relating their children with that sense of authority that God has given to them. Children, honor your parents in a way that you would not honor your buddies at school. But the fact is, we should also recognize that we need intimacy. And we've been given that intimacy through Jesus Christ, God, our Father, infinitely transcendent above us, has become our friend. And you should be friends with your children. Within the context, the parameters I, ju I just mentioned, but not in a way that undermines that honor and that authority. But you ought to be friends. If God can be a friend to you, surely you can be a friend to your children. And that's very important. It's at the heart of applying the Gospel to those relationships. Well, also, she comes believing. She comes believing. She comes actively exercising faith. She's followed the footsteps of the flock. She sees the king at his table. And she just is overwhelmed with love and affection at the beauty of this king. Verse 16, Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. She sees the beauty of the king. To her... To the one who believes, this woman here, the Lord is precious. And we know that's not the case for the watching world. The world would look at what we're doing here tonight and really the, the whole Christian life and would say, well, there's nothing significant there. They would look at Jesus. They might read a passage from the Bible. And as Isaiah says, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. That is no beauty. 
And when we see Him, that is in our natural sinful selves, like the world at large, when we see Him, there's no beauty that we should desire Him. The world doesn't look at Jesus and say, ah, the King in His beauty. Behold, He is handsome and beloved and pleasant and precious. And I'm going to cling to Him. The world doesn't give a rip about Him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. But not this bride. She comes by faith, seeing like the thief on the cross, saw the crucified Savior where people were mocking Him. Clearly from an earthly perspective, everything has just fallen apart and all of his claims have fallen to the ground and he's just an imposter and yet that thief on the cross by faith says lord remember me when you come into your kingdom he sees him as a king the placard above the cross jesus of nazareth the king of the jews do you look at this king the crucified savior presented for you at the lord's table And can you see Him as King in His death? Can you see Him as King, not in His ascension, but in His death with the crown of thorns, the King that we need to save us from our sins who rules over a wicked and rebellious nation of people that needed to give His life for them and take that curse upon Himself. The King with the crown of thorns. The King on the cross. The King with the purple robe who was mocked and scourged and beaten with a rod and handed it to be his scepter. This bride looks to her king and she looks to this king's table as we think of the Passover and she sees more than just a lamb, a physical lamb. She sees the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you, dear believer, do you look at this Jesus of Nazareth and do you say, well, we know who his parents are. We, we know his sisters. He's from Nazareth. Can any good come out of Nazareth? Do you look at him as just an ordinary man? Or is he precious in your eyes? And when you look at this table, which is so utterly ordinary, there's nothing. We could say just as it says in Isaiah 53 about Christ Himself. There's nothing outwardly attractive about this table that you should desire it. But can you see Can you discern the Lord's body and His blood? Can you see the value of this altogether lovely crucified King at His table? To you who believe, He is precious, as is His sacrament. And she comes adorned and made ready. Verse 10, her neck has a chain of gold. Verse 11, she has ornaments of gold and studs of silver. She's decked out as a bride arrayed and adorned for her husband. She's decked out. She's prepared. She's clothed. She has a fragrant aroma. We're told, verse 12, my spikenard. That's another very rare and precious spice that maybe someone who was very wealthy might just take a smidge of that and wear it at a feast or at a banquet to signify how seriously and how important that dinner was to them. They would wear that fragrant aroma. It was very expensive. She says, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. So she does everything she can do to prepare, not trusting in herself or or glorying in herself, but desiring to, to be as beautiful and attractive to the King as possible. And my friends, when we seek to live our Christian lives, what better motive could there be than by God's grace, by Christ's strength, seeking to be more and more pleasant in His eyes. Seeking to obey for His sake. Seeking to obey, as the Scripture says, for His good pleasure. Not as Ephraim, Hosea 10.1, who brought forth fruit unto himself. We ought to be bringing forth fruit so that Christ's joy may be filled, may be full, and ours as well. And so, we're adorned in godliness. We seek to obey the Lord. We seek to come into the presence of Christ having confessed our sins and having sought to honor Him in every way we can because it's a real relationship. When we do that, just like in a marriage, when you take these things seriously and you put in, you go the extra mile and you prepare and you do these things to make it a special occasion, then you enjoy the fruit of that. Your spouse understands the significance of that. It enhances the intimacy, the relationship that you have. It's a love language. It's a way of showing that person how much you love them. Well, Jesus says, 
if you love me, keep my commandments and be adorned with holiness because that's what I love. That's what I desire. And it's interesting, spikenard. Spikenard is the same fragrant oil or fragrant spice that was used by Mary, the sister of Martha, when they sat at the Passover table or at a dinner that was uh, just prior to the Passover at Mary and Martha's house. You can read about that in Mark 14 and verse 3. You can read about it in John 12, 1 and following. And isn't it interesting? The king is at his table. And the spikenard gives off a pleasant aroma. Mark 14, verse 3, being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, so it's Simon's house actually, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. And if you look at uh, John chapter 12, we're told that Lazarus was there who had been raised from the dead. We're told that they made him a supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of the, those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus. So he anoints her head and his, his head in Mark, anoints his feet in John, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And of course, Judas and the other disciples were upset about this because of how expensive it was. But the point is, she, she did a good work, Jesus said, upon him to prepare him for his burial. She poured out her love and affection upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And it filled the room with the fragrance of that spikenard. It sent forth its fragrance around the king's table. And my friends, that's what he desires this this evening. Come to his table and shower him with your love. Shower him with your affection. Be filled with the aroma of Christ. And even as they cast their crowns that they've received as a reward in heaven, they cast them at the feet of the Savior. Even so, that oil of your spikenard, just pour it, just pour it upon Christ. Pour over Him and lavish Him with your affection. Revelation 19, the bride has made herself ready. This bride is ready. She's also hopeful for the future. She's hopeful that this table experience will lead to greater intimacy. Verse 13, So she's not clinging to him between her breasts at the table, obviously. That's coming later. The corporate feast and banquet is a precursor to greater intimacy. Is that how you view the Lord's table? Are you hopeful that coming under the Word and sacrament this evening, that that will lead you, as it says earlier in the chapter, that you'll be brought into His chambers, that you will be, Psalm 45, all glorious within the King's chamber? Will this lead you to the secret place to commune with God in Christ and to receive His reward? She's optimistic that that's where this is heading. And she's optimistic of her spiritual fruitfulness. Verse 16, also our bed is green. We saw that this morning. It's not talking about the color scheme in the bedroom. It's talking about the fruitfulness of the conjugal relationship As Paul mentions, we read it this morning in Romans chapter 7, that we, in being married to Jesus, bring forth fruit unto Him, the fruit of good works, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. She's hopeful that coming to the king's table is not going to end there. It's going to lead to greater and greater fruitfulness. And she's confident that this relationship that they have, the house, this The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. There's a stability and a strength and a confidence. Uh, the, The gates of hell will not prevail against this house that Christ has established. Oh, my friends, and she comes satisfied. She has found her rest. She has found her rest. The bed is green. She can rest easy. She can rest in the arms of her loving Savior. She's no longer being scorched by the noonday sun. She is lying with her beloved, enjoying rest and peace 
And when we come to this table, we ought to come to be satisfied with the broken body and with the poured out blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that will satisfy you apart from that. There's nothing more that you need than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so come to this table. Come to the King's table. Follow the footsteps of the flock. Be seated at the King's table and be prepared not to do anything, but to receive all things. To receive all things by faith through this sacrament. Let's pray. Gracious God, enable us to open wide our mouths that You would fill us with the righteousness, the peace, and the joy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take away our reproach. Take away the darkness and the weariness and the guilt and clothe us in His spotless perfection, garments of righteousness and salvation and enable us to receive Him in communion with our heavenly bridegroom. We pray in His name. Amen.